I should probably intro this by making some corny joke about looking in a box or something, but frankly I'm just excited to talk about a real movie again after Expendable season. So let's watch 7 and analyse the ever-loving crap out of it. Welcome everyone to the Collector's Cut, I am Peter and joining me as always is David. This isn't going to have a happy ending. You flubbed it. I did. You flubbed it. I did. <laughs> Welcome everyone. This is a movie podcast. We are starting off our new season here in the Collector's Cut. It is the David Fincher season. We were going to be working through one by one pretty much all of David Fincher's films barring two exceptions. One is Alien 3, which we're not doing today because we already did it over in the Atomic Cinema Experiment, our science fiction movie podcast. Um, and we'll be skipping Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. We'll leave that for a Dragon Tattoo uh, franchise <laughs> at some point. Uh, but every other film in Fincher's filmography as a director mm-hmm. will be covered. Obviously, he's got his new film out in November. We'll be doing that, of course. Um, yep. The only other thing to mention is that the game is going to be this month's bonus episode over in Patreon. So... Uh, I'll do the cheap plug for that now. Patreon.com slash MailFuzzTV. Uh, the game is going to be the bonus episode over there uh, at the $3 tier and up. So uh, go go and ha- have a look over there if you want that. Uh, that'll be out pretty much the same weekend this goes out publicly. So uh, that'll already be up. And then next week's episode will be going to his next film, which of course is Fight Club. But mm-hmm. what film are we starting with then? That's the one thing I've not said. Well, <laughs> it's one of his most famous. It's Seven. Uh, starring Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt, uh, the 1995 film. This is somehow he bounced back from the train wreck of a production that was Alien 3 with yeah. Seven uh, at New Line Cinema. So we'll start spoiler-free, of course, as we always do. We'll give you a warning mm-hmm. before we go into the spoilers. Uh, but that is the that is the plan. So uh, we'll get into it. Now, I assume you've seen this before. I have seen this before. I It was many, many, many years ago. And I assumed going into this movie that I had forgotten large swaths of it. I was like, oh, it's, it, I've got this basic structure in my mind, but I assume there's bits of it I'm forgetting. But in rewatching it, nah, I basically had it all. There's a few tiny little details I forgot about, but for the most part, pretty much accurate to the way I remember it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like details that connect, like the the evidence or the scenes that like mm-hmm. I always forget because those are the minute details that are hard to remember but yeah the the I, I think the the large broad strokes of what it's doing thematically and the the big sort of set piece like murder scenes that we kind of get to see uh right. do tend to stick out in your mind a bit so yeah. uh we'll we'll get into it then yeah the premise of this is that uh brad pitt plays a, plays a character named detective mills who's just transferred to unknown city it which... is it is technically at the very end when they're they're driving out of the town for a reason you are able to deduce based off road signs that this is LA but nothing in the movie says that it's LA yeah i i'm going to discount that not because it's like i, I get why you see a road sign and someone can mm-hmm. work out okay that's that road in this location I think it's very intentional that this is not a real city. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is absolutely a fictional city uh, that 
You really, you can, and it really, you start to feel it the way Morgan Freeman keeps saying this place, this city. Mm. No one ever says a name. No one ever talks about it. And it's such a depressing, nihilistic, violent city that it just, it comes across as this sort of, I don't know, serial killer version of Gotham City that is demented. I mean, it kind of just feels like normal Gotham City at that point. I, I suppose, yeah, but... I feel like Gotham City usually has more hope because Batman exists. <laughs> this, oh, this, this does not have that. We have Morgan that. Freeman. That's as close as we're going to get. Oh, this is a prequel, is it? This is Lucius mm-hmm. Fox when he was oh, a detective yeah. for 33 years before he jumped ship to win Enterprise. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, he, he transfers to this, this new city for him uh, and Morgan Freeman's the, the veteran cop who's close to retirement and is sick of this shit. He's ready to be mm-hmm. done. But they end up landing this case of this grisly murder scene, which ends up being a series of murders, uh, all based around the seven deadly sins. Hence the title, and that kind of sets her. Oh, I get it now. Okay. Clever. Yeah. I don't know if that's as funny, because they actually say it multiple times in the movie. (laughs) They do. They do. (laughs) It's not like it's subtext here. I'm not, not, like, pulling from my knowledge of, (laughs) you know, of literature here, or mythology even i suppose in this case but anywho uh that is the basic gist of the movie and uh i will just we'll get into it so uh david uh Mm. what are your general feelings on seven so obviously like i said i had this already watched and i remembered most all of it so just in terms of rewatching it how did i feel about it i think that it is astounding to me that if you discount Alien 3, which is obviously had tons of studio interference, had tons of like, he had to work within the continuity of Alien and stuff like that. This is the first thing that Fincher really comes out as his own. And he just knocks it out of the park. Like in terms of style, in terms of substance, in terms of just everything, how tense the movie is throughout it, especially as we ramp up into the third act. Like, it's incredible that this is his first real outing in that regard. So mm. I'll give kudos to that. I, I, of course, with all that said, I obviously very much enjoyed it. Do I think that is his strongest film just out of the ones I've seen? No, I do think he gets better with time, but I do think that this is obviously a great opening act for him as a director with a vision rather than a director for a studio. Yeah, it's the first one that feels entirely his. And maybe that's not completely true. Maybe there was a little bit of like give and take with New Line Cinema over mm. like some things in the movie. I don't know. But right. it feels like it says. It feels like his vision. It feels like his visual style, his editing style. Um, all, all of it feels very David Fincher. And that's something that's maintained uh, throughout a lot of his career. He's played with it a little bit, obviously, here or there, and like, you know, adjusted right. accordingly. But. Uh, there's definitely a vibe to it that feels distinctly him. And it's here, like you say, in his first real movie. And mm-hmm. I only mean that in the sense that Alien 3, like you say, is it's compromised by being a studio movie, it's compromised by being a sequel, and it's compromised by studio interference. Like, it's mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of asterisks on that movie. Uh, and in fact, I believe he even wanted to Alan Smithy it, maybe, but he wasn't that allowed to. That wouldn't surprise me, yeah. yeah. I may be making that fact up. I'm not sure, but that's like in my head. It's coming oh, up in verify. my head. I'll verify. I'll verify. Yeah, do you do Google? Uh, but this, this is you know, this movie, uh, as a lot of big, prominent, groundbreaking movies tend to be, this movie is a little bit guilty, and this is not its own fault. 
but it's guilty of basically spawning so many knockoffs and so many other movies that were trying to mimic the style and mimic everything. I, I was really noticing the opening title sequence that, oh shit, Saw got its entire aesthetic oh, from yeah, this opening no. title sequence. <laughs> this, well, as soon as the opening title sequence started, it felt like the quintessential, like, grungy horror feel that I feel has been imitated in the two decades since. It's been, in fact, nearly three. I would I would say specifically two thousands. Like I don't think it's that mm. common anymore. But if you look at two thousand to about two thousand six, give or take, yeah, it is plagued with trying to be seven. Um, mm. and that's what's so funny about it is that like I hate anyone else trying to do this. Like all the other oh, movies yeah. that try to pull off uh, Fincher's visual style, they all come off just feeling like puke. They just look mm. disgusting, and they just feel that they're they slapped a filter on it and they've called it a day yeah that's, that's all it is i think the biggest thing is that with fincher's thing you can feel the artistry to it you can feel how long even something just as simple as the opening credits took to make oh yeah, Whereas yeah, yeah it feels yeah. like all of the later ones have just this afterthought to it where it's like we want to imitate the style but we want to get it done in like i don't know six hours yeah, there's a lot of attention to the, the cinematography in this, uh, and I mean that mm. not just in framing and, and camera moves and whatnot, but mm. specifically the lighting. There's a lot of really specific dark sequences, silhouette sequences, just moody atmosphere throughout. Uh, you know, yep. really you get the nihilism of the city and all that in here. Mm. Uh, so to go through, or do you have an update on my... Yes, I do. Um, I can't find any direct source, but I do see a bunch of other web pages saying it is rumored that he looked into ah, okay. using Alan Smithy. So well, at least it's a widely spread rumor. I've I've heard it somewhere. Then whether yeah. it's accurate is another other question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we typically do uh, kind of the principal cash rundown. I'm going to avoid one particular name for now because I feel like it's supposed to be a surprise. Uh, if the movie does it, we do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That the the credit doesn't come. Uh, mm-hmm. It's actually a lot like a TV show in that when a TV show's got a guest star, they don't want to spoil. They'll, they'll save them for the end credits. But not mm. only that, this even has like a pre-credit sequence and then the credits start, and that's very yeah. TV. You know, most movies will just have their titles first, um, right. rather than a scene first and then go into them. It's not. It's not. I'm not saying it's never done. It is occasionally, but it's a very TV style structure. Uh, but obviously, we got Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. We mentioned those. Brad Pitt's wife in the film is Gwyneth Paltrow, who's the third build actor. Mm-hmm. Just uh, to mention um, their names, we said Mills is Brad Pitt. Somerset is the name of Morgan Freeman, and yep. Tracy is Gwyneth Paltrow's character. Yeah, and those are the important characters, really, but there's a lot of recognizable faces that pop up in small yep. roles. Um, so- hey, hey, Pete, not to jump ahead, but remember the corrupt cop from batman begins do you know what's so funny (laughs) is that i don't think i ever realized it was him in this movie before purely because he does not have his beard in this yes yes uh so yes he's popped up a few times he was in memento of course which made Mm -hmm. sense because that was another nolan film but he's he's now popped up in too fast too furious And now seven across our collector's cut lineage. And he is he in this movie, he once again is playing essentially the exact same role. And I I don't understand this level well, of typecasting. No, 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 no. He's got range. This is a corrupt FBI agent. Right. My bad. But there's a difference. <laughs> totally separate. <laughs> oh dear. Hey, at least in Memento he wasn't a cop, okay? He was a, True. he was like a motel manager. 
Mm-hmm. Still so, corrupt, though. I mean, the corruption. Corrupt. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to argue against the corruption. Um, so we got him. Uh, Reggie Cathy plays the the coroner dude early on in one scene. Like, mm-hmm. so that's a face I recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, R. E. R. Sorry, R. Lee Ermey plays yes. the police chief, uh, who of course is very famous for Full Metal Jacket, but he pops up all over the place. I- I, st- I stared at him for like five minutes just trying to be like, I know you and I feel like you're Arlie Ermey. <laughs> Joe's so funny. It's because he always plays a military dude, but here he's right. not. So he looks it, different. It wasn't even the fact that he was military. It was the fact that he was so soft-spoken. He uh, was just like casually holding conversations. I'm like, yell. I need to see you yell so I know you're Arlie Ermey. And I can't believe I'm saying this. But do you know that we have a reunion in this movie? I do. I know exactly who you're talking about. But this is this is also for a uh, bonus episode. So not a lot of people would have seen this. True, true. Or, sorry, extra reels. My yeah, bad. So, so our second monthly bonus show on, on Patreon is Collector's Cut Extra Reels. And that mm-hmm. is where we do so bad it's good movies. Well, hopefully. Sometimes hopefully. we just do really bad movies. And <laughs> we'd have to do On Deadly Ground, the Steven Seagal directed film from 1994. And in that movie, R. Lee Ermey's in there, but so is, uh, was it John McGinley is, is, yep. is in John that? John C. McGinley, yep. And he is in this as well. He's like the head of the SWAT team in this that pops up a few times. And he's not like a big character, but he's there. You can recognize yeah. him. So I just, I had this moment where I recognized him. I was like, oh, that's funny. And I was like, oh, that's Ermey. And then I just had this moment. I'm like, wait a minute. They were both in On Deadly Ground one year before this. <laughs> yeah, and you just know On Deadly Ground had a much shorter filming schedule than Seven did. So oh, odds course. are they probably like overlapped pretty close with each other. Um. Yeah, and so you, you've got you've got that going on. You also mm-hmm. uh, just the fact that Morgan Freeman was in Shawshank the year before this as well. True. So yeah. it's I, I know his first big thing was Driving Miss Daisy a few years prior, but. I feel mm-hmm. like Shawshank and then this really is what cemented him as like, oh, this man who's already in his 50s is a movie star now. Like, right. <laughs> that's just oh, him. Yeah. He's a made man now. I, l- I love the little story here based off of his previous things is that during the test screenings, you know how they have to fill out little cards with like, mm-hmm. oh, what did you like? What did you just like? The one thing that they put for Morgan Freeman is like, would you be interested in seeing more films from Morgan Freeman? And then in parentheses, Driving Miss Daisy. And it's like, this is not the film to reference Driving Miss Daisy with, man. <laughs> um, uh, Richard Roundtree shows up as... What was his exact role? He's, he's his like name the... was Tal... Talbot? Talbot? Yeah, but he's like the... Is it the head of the police force, maybe? He's doing a press conference at one point talking I about... I thought he was mayor. Maybe he's mayor, yeah. That, that would that would make sense, too. Yeah. Uh, but So he's something like that. So yeah, there's a lot mm. of faces that kind of sprinkle in. Uh, a, a much smaller one. Uh, I can't really give context for who it is, but there's a guy who pops up like halfway or so through who has got a memorable role from Alien Resurrection. Okay. Uh, funnily enough. Uh, what, you know... And that's, I'm not saying that because Alien 3 obviously connected to Fincher. It just it just happens to be from Alien Resurrection. Yeah. Uh, which came a year after this, or two years after this. So, yeah. Uh, lots of faces. You know, it's a mid-90s movie, and a lot of mid-90s mm-hmm. faces uh, pop up in there. So, yep. uh, good fun, uh, to say the least, in that s- uh, respect. So, yeah. Oh, I never said what I think of the movie. Is that no, you yeah. uh, um, Oh, it's really good. <laughs> it's... Um, I I always liked the movie, but when I watched it again a few years ago, I kind of mm-hmm. like 
respected it a lot more because I think mm-hmm. everyone remembers as a serial killer and all these deadly crimes and the detectives are trying to solve it. But I think there's a much more interesting like story that's that's actually helping tell that's not on the surface, which mm-hmm. is about Morgan Freeman's character's nihilism and his view of the world. And I think the story is really about him, which is funny. It's a funny comparison to Shawshank, actually, because I would say the same about Shawshank, is that yeah. the story is really about his character, even though he's not the one that's necessarily always the focus. Here, it's a bit more even with him and Brad Pitt. They're probably quite even as far as screen time and everything else. Yeah. But it's, it's you know that's really what the movie's about. It's about uh, ideals. It's about the nihilism of this place and about giving up hope. And mm-hmm. I think it's... Obviously, it's a very dark film, but I do think there's kind of some like almost inspiring moments of hope in there as well because someone's willing to try oh, yeah. even in the face of all this kind of thing mm-hmm. so i, yeah, I actually it's, think it's, it's quite good because of all that stuff yeah no it's definitely one of those things where obviously the primary focus of it is like any other police procedural sort of thing catching the bad guy he's he's committing these crimes he's going about doing these things and the primary focus on the surface level is we need to catch up to him and get him before he because obviously it's seven deadly sins there is a hard cap to how many people he's going to kill and they're trying to catch him before he does that but like you said the the underlying focus of it the theming is basically pessimism versus optimism like is it worth going out and trying to do something or is it better to just be reactive instead apathy comes up the word apathy comes up and that's another Mm -hmm. thing that's definitely about um and it's about being willing to try and mm-hmm. you know i think it gets into all those ideas and it does make the film much richer it has a lot more depth and that's what i was saying when i watched it a few years ago and i hadn't seen it in a long time is and maybe the last time i'd seen it i was maybe quite young maybe not like a kid but certainly maybe my late teens or something i think watching as an adult and seeing those themes and appreciating mm-hmm. it on that level made me go oh hey this is more than just a dark thriller there's actually a, a real story here as well uh, yeah. And I really appreciate that. Because it, it really does dive into the sort of stereotypical old grizzled cop who's burnt out and young idealist cop who's doesn't know what they're getting into. And, and I think intentionally so to subvert it for the you know, mm-hmm. the reasons why he's burned out is different from like your, your right. stereotypical version of it, that story. It gives you something somewhat familiar just so we can twist it in a way you're not expecting it to. And I think that that is a, a great thing that this movie does because it doesn't... It doesn't make it one of those things where it takes until the third act and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you thought it was this way. It's no, it presents it to you in the first act as expected. And then by the time the first act's done, it's already shown you this isn't quite the same as what you're used to dealing with. So you're able to elaborate on that as the movie continues. Yeah. Um, And obviously the direction is very Mm. specific throughout. It's very on point. Uh, I mentioned the cinematography already, the sound design even at times. Yes. It uses scratching noises, it uses all sorts of things in the soundtrack on top of the traditional, you know, brass and orchestra mm-hmm. instruments. It's it, it's always got the, its overall feeling in mind. And it's something that yeah. copycats, I think, tend to miss, you know, when they're trying to evoke this type of movie, is that they mm-hmm. forget that, this movie's like every single scene is done with the purpose of keeping the same atmosphere and keeping the same tone and all of it serves the themes that it's playing to i think the biggest thing for me is the idea that this movie is 
horrifying. It puts images in your head via implications, but it never really dives into the gruesomeness of it. It's not a body horror. It's not a torture porn. It is just kind of scary based off of the idea of what's going on. You do see some gruesome stuff, but I think the specific thing I would say is that you never see the kills themselves. You only ever see them from the perspective of the detectives, which is Mm -hmm. the aftermath of the kills. You see the the, the, the crime scene, you see the photographs, you see all these things. Yeah, I'm comparing it more to like Saw. Like you said, it it tried to copy over that same sort of grungy style to it, but this is where it primarily differs in that it's all focused on here's how we got to this gruesome part in saw whereas in this it's only the aftermath and it it, it, as an audience it instills you with very different feelings to see either one some one of them's more tension and the other one's more horror yeah um so yeah and obviously the crime scenes themselves are kind of fun puzzles to a point Mm -hmm. obviously you've got this kind of killer who's a bit of a mastermind uh, it's not hard to see why Matt Reeves might have thought, hey, my version of Riddler could maybe be a little uh, little like oh, this yeah. guy. Um, you know, there's a little bit of that that sort of detail getting in there. And I think mm-hmm. all of that adds up to a film that's compelling on the surface level for its, you know, hunting the murderer. Now you've got the subtext, you've got the themes. You've kind of got a complete package here, uh, mm-hmm. ultimately. The only real thing going against it, really, and it's not the movie's fault, is that all of these things have been mimicked so much that you, like, I think it's possible yeah. that you might go back and watch this, and if you've seen a bu- enough of the, the knockoffs, and you've seen enough of the films that aren't even necessarily knockoffs, but they're just taking one thing from it. Maybe it's the visual style, maybe it's the uh, the editing style, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And maybe you'll see those and go, oh, I'm too sick of these things from all the things that came later. But it's, it's not this movie's fault. <laughs> so oh, yeah. many things yeah. copied it. You you opened up with the uh, like the style of its opening credits and even the style of the movie overall. I was hesitant to bring that up because I didn't I know that it's been done a million times in the style. I wasn't sure if this was one of the first. I I I it you saying it I think it is one of the first. I believed it was, but I didn't want to say that because like you said, it's been done a million times. I have seen this exact sort of like scratchy, like, oh, isn't it so scary how how handwritten and spooky all this text looks? And it's like, no, because these guys did it better all the way back here. Yeah, I mean, if there is like similar examples from before here, this was definitely the one that kind of like hit the ceiling, shall we say, yeah. With, yeah. With, with the with the style. Um, but it's notable that Fincher, well, he's kept a lot of his things that he does in this movie he's that that particular thing he's not brought back i don't think any of his films after this have that style the closest i can think of is a little bit of zodiac but that's about the only time and obviously they have very similar concepts and themes to them yeah because they're both about serial killers so Mm -hmm. yeah like i i think you know i bring that up and i don't really feel that when i'm watching it other than just that it does make me think of it a little bit but it's not so much that i'm annoyed that the movie's doing it i'm just sort of like Oh, I'm thinking of a lot of the copycats because this has right. been so overdone. But it's mm. it's never a problem um, in in the actual viewing itself. And the movie's very compelling. So sometimes when we're doing a movie that I've seen before, even if I know I like the movie, there is still a part of it that goes, "Oh my god, is this going to be?" You know, some movies like okay, I still like the movie, but like I sit down to watch it again, and I've already seen it, and it, you know, it's, a, it's just over two hours long. 
is there going mm-hmm. to be a point in the middle where I want a break because you know I've seen right. it before and I I I don't need to, I'm not on the hook to find out what happens in the same way that I am in a first time viewing. Am I going to need a break? And yeah. the sign of a really great movie to me is that even when I'm watching it for the you know and this is probably the fourth or fifth viewing I've had of this one is. Mm-hmm. Am I just still engaged with it the entire time? Is the way that the scenes are playing out, and it's just some simple little things like the in the first couple scenes. Um, this is still before the opening titles when they basically meet for the first time. Now they've spoken on the phone. They, they reference that they have spoken on the phone before, but mm. uh, Mills just shows up to this crime scene that uh, that Somerset's at. He comes up and talks to him, introduces himself, and they go out in the rain and. Somerset's just asking, why would you ask to be transferred here? No one asks to come here. Um, which is kind of setting up that Mills wants to prove himself, that he's sort of got a thrill-seeking part of, you know, quality right. to his character. Um, but as this is, you know, happening, and they're asking these questions, and they're all... In, and this is one of these things where re-watching is almost better sometimes to the first viewing, is that when you go in knowing what the themes are, you're really paying attention to how they're all introduced and how mm-hmm. right from the get-go it does bring up these subjects and starts making you think about them. And it makes you appreciate right. those moments of dialogue even more. And all of this is taking place in this just heavy, loud rain that's almost making it difficult to hear what they're saying sometimes because the rain's so... Um, in fact, the word that I'd maybe use to describe the, the atmosphere of this whole film as well as this scene is... Um... Oh, God... Oh, I had it in my head when I was watching the movie. Uh, Melancholy. Morose. No, 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 no. <laughs> when everything's so, like, coming on so strong around you, everything's so... Uh, intense? Bleak? It is intense, but st- stronger than that, it is... <laughs> God damn it. Synonyms it's for good... intense. <laughs> oppressive was that the word i was looking for that's it that is a word i think that's the word i was looking for yeah everything's right. just so yeah. oppressive uh right. the world's so impressive around them right everything mm-hmm. about it including the weather um and i think that's a very intentional choice and like mm-hmm. and it's just so captivating immediately their first interactions and watching how they play off watching how brad pitt reacts to what morgan freeman says and vice versa you immediately you're mm-hmm. drawn into it even if you've seen it a number of times before and that's just a yep. sign of good direction good performances good script those are the things I also, I also think that fincher does a great job here in that you were saying this idea that you know halfway through the movie whether or not you feel like you need a break i think he does a great job of front-loading the movie with the scenes that feel somewhat skippable before you get tired of them for instance there's a dinner scene where it's just kind of hey let's get to know each other let's sit down if that were placed at the halfway point two-thirds the way in the movie that would easily be the all right i'm going to go to the bathroom part of the movie but they purposely move all those types of scenes to the front end so that you're still engaged with it you're still absorbing it and then the rest of the movie can just be building off that in the more action-packed and tense scenes yeah uh so i mean honestly i kind of want to get into it and just start going yeah, through I, mean, I, I, I don't know if there's much more to add spoiler free wise uh we we can get into everything i suppose yeah. uh so yeah spoilers for henceforth for seven should you have not seen it obviously we recommend it uh, mm-hmm. but we're going to work through the movie now and talk about everything so you've been warned uh so it's gwyneth paltrow's head in the box okay <laughs> let's just get out of the way <laughs> Here I was going to do that, but I'm like, no, Pete's always torn into me for spoiling things out of order. I shouldn't do that. 
we're going in order otherwise i just wanted to say that. yeah that's fine that's fair i just wanted to part of, i just you know, funny yeah. funny bit of trivia um there was actually a head in the box it's never oh, no. shown in the movie but they recycled the prop for the 20 i think 11 movie contagion where gwyneth paltrow also dies in that movie so <laughs> spoilers for contagion no that's like first act she dies super early Actually, that I'm thinking about, it. I think she's like patient zero. Yeah, <laughs> in that movie. But yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, interesting. So, mm-hmm. which probably suggests that they were planning to do a shot of the head, but then either took it out the cut or did, or decided not to for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so yeah, we can't we can't talk. To, I mean, the opening is actually a very quiet opening. It's just the uh, mm-hmm. Somerset Morgan Freeman's character. And his morning routine, and he's very methodical. You know, he puts out his pen and his comb, and he, the things that he puts in his jacket for work, and mm-hmm. he's fixing his tie. Um, he's literally got a metronome next to his bed, which again is a, the sign of a very methodical man. <laughs> I mean, yes, I would borderline say sociopathic. Like, oh. I understand needing some white noise and stuff like that, but a metronome just seems a bit too extra. I don't think that's irregular i thought people use metronomes for this then i mean maybe they do for me i need like a if i if i need white noise i need like a constant hum a ticking noise would drive me insane oh yeah no the ticking noise would drive me insane as well but yeah you know i, I I'll, I'll listen to some i don't know youtube basically <laughs> yeah what, for, for me the, I, you know. I have a saved 10 hour video of the uh sound of the bridge from star trek it's just this low hum Okay, nerd. Very good. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you want to fall asleep listening to one of our playlists on YouTube, by all means, mm. do it. I, I, yeah. I, I encourage you even. Uh, so, <laughs> but you're dreaming. Wake up. But this is you know it's a very quiet opening of just his character, and this is a character who we we soon discover is retiring in a week, notably seven days, just to fit with yep. the the theme. And what's so funny? Is that I don't know if this is supposed to be like a play on the like one cop's close to retirement, so they're definitely dead. Yeah, I almost I'm not sure if that's quite like a known trope yet. It definitely existed by this point. I but... mean, I think that it really hit its peak. Just thinking about all the times I've seen it during the '80s, like you had yeah. all those '80s buddy cop films with one of them so close to retirement. I feel like it's played out by that point. I'm just wondering if it's an intentional play on that trope or if it's just because, no, it, it just it fits the story that he's getting ready well, to quit. Yeah. You know, it, it's not it's not like they've, they've, they've skewed this whole plot around so they can make, make that joke. Because it's mm. not a joke. It's The whole point is, is that he's giving up. He doesn't want yeah. to like fight for the city anymore because he just feels like it's hopeless. Mm. And that's who his character is in this. Um, and there's these little moments of him showing that he still cares in, in other ways, of course, as the, the movie progresses. But that's why he's given up that's why he's leaving mm-hmm. um so they reference that a bunch of times he's partnered with mills for his final week um at least to begin with they kind of get separated and they get put back together again through circumstance yeah. but um so you know it, so it actually cuts to the credits in this really kind of again very quiet moment uh there's a scene basically we see him going to bed but we also see mills going to bed with his wife and it's the and this is like setting up this theme. You're supposed to be comparing these two characters and the, the mm-hmm. opening does that for you. It's like, hey, Somerset's going to bed alone. It's quiet and it's cold. Mills goes to bed. He's with his wife. They're hugging. There's a warm glow to the lighting. It's, you know, it looks you yeah. know happier. Uh, there's happiness there. And 
it's on this that it decides to go to the the buzzsaw style <laughs> opening <Yeah>. titles <laughs> i mean it's i, I well i appreciate the contrast to it because it really just jolts the audience awake i also have to point out that these opening titles i think are wonderfully done not just in the style that they present but also there's background video of this basically showing how our serial killer is doing everything he does the one thing that specifically gets me which obviously we'll get to later is you can see him during this background video cutting off his fingertips you ah. can see that happening so if you pay attention to what seems to be just random gruesome ish footage you get hints as to what's going on in the next yeah. like entire rest of the scene it's the sort of thing though on a first time watch it's so out of context that you probably mm. don't take any of it in yeah you just assume it's a montage of random creepy things yeah yeah in fact i'll, I'll probably you know i'll say as i'll say that I, I i don't know if this for sure but i i'm just sort of uh pondering that maybe this type of opening title sequence not that this movie i'm about to reference had an opening title sequence like that but mm. there's definitely a little bit of the vibe of at the start of texas chainsaw massacre uh with the sound of the light bulb mm. and it's like the the crime photo sounds I'm, I, I do, I'm wondering if this opening title sequence style is an extension of the feeling that that movie created with those light bulb flashing the sound effects. Um, I can definitely I, see a through line from one to the other. I don't know if, you know, if it's a conscious thing or if it's just something that naturally leads from one to the other, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the opening credits of this quite instill as much tension or quite as much uncomfortability. I think that it's very stylized, but I don't think the emotional responses as full as like later scenes that immediately follow it you know oh, of course yeah yeah uh so so uh one thing mm. we just kind of glossed over though in that introductory scene of um somerset at his the the first homicide that he's at is specifically how he is as a character it's kind of just him summed oh, yeah, up uh, as a whole yeah i'm glad you're bringing this up actually this is a really good yeah. point is uh the other detective who's there um is very confrontational and doesn't like he's annoyed that morgan freeman dares to ask any questions mm -hmm. because somerset as a character is like okay we've got this this violent murder and from what it sounds like a wife murdered her husband and yeah. morgan freeman is looking at the fridge and he notices you know child's drawings and things like that and he's like hey where's the kid and the other detective's like what why are you asking stupid questions who cares and he's like did the kids see it? It's like, I don't give a shit. It's not my job. Like, we, we yeah. come in and we deal with the murder, and that's it. And it's showing that... It, it, it's clearly established here that Somerset is a character. He does care. And mm -hmm. the reason why he's giving up is not because he doesn't care. It's that because he's cared for so long, and the system and the city and the people around him have just, like, made him lose hope. And even yeah. here... He's been in bullied this, into apathy. Yeah, even here in his final days, he's still showing concern for the innocent kid who might have been traumatized and i actually think it's quite powerful in a weird way that we never meet this kid we never get a yeah. resolution to this it just we move on from this scene and we never come back to it yeah because it, as we learn throughout the movie somerset basically understands like look we're here to collect the info and maybe hopefully we can catch the guy after he does everything he's going to do but for the most part we're not here to save the day and he's just completely broken down in this idea of being a hero or going above and beyond he's here strictly for 
basically as an evidence collector. That's all he sees himself as anymore. So when it comes down to this opening scene of they've already established the cause of death, they've already established how it happens. As soon as the kid gets involved, who cares? He's not part of the crime. That's above and beyond, and we don't do that. Yeah, but it's showing that he's got, you know, he's got empathy. He cares mm-hmm. because, yeah, this kid might be traumatized. He might need someone to help him. But yeah. ultimately, no one at his job cares about that. So, you know, the nihilism is obviously right there <laughs> off oh, the yeah. bat. No uh, doubt. And so they're called to the crime uh, the next day. And Brad Pitt, yeah, Mills, bless him, gets some coffee for him and his, his new partner. <laughs> and he's standing in the pouring rain. And Somerset wants nothing to do with this coffee. He's there to be professional. Uh, so, um, but Mills and him go in, and Mills has a bit of an altercation with a like one of the cops that are there because they've not went in to actually go into the crime scene yet. They've called them in to go in and sort of be the first people to go in. Yeah, they basically the cops on the scene didn't verify whether or not the guy was alive or dead. And obviously, once we see the scene, it's super obvious that he's dead. But like. Mills is upset that they're not doing these basic little tasks of checking on humanity anymore. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, obviously, Somerset is used to this. As, as we're saying, he's been beaten down into submission, whereas mm. Mills is still this idealist. But I think what's interesting about Mills' character, though, is he's not this, per- like, when we see he's an idealist, he's not this perfect guy either. He's a hothead. <laughs> he's got a mm-hmm. temper. He yells and he swears. And he's very quick to just start dropping f bombs when he when someone's not like giving him the response he wants. Yep. So like he's a very flawed character, even though he's got these noble intentions at, at his core. Uh, but they go in and we get our first crime scene scene, and you know it's it's uh, this overweight man, vastly overweight man, whose head's mm. like in a a bowl of uh, was it spaghetti soup or something like that? They said. Yeah, it's spaghetti. And. Uh, they're looking around the crime scene it's obviously very disgusting and they missed the, so there's a couple of crime scenes early on where they miss something at first and they go back to later so uh, you know it's, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just mention here that eventually uh, when they get bits of like plastic or whatever it is from the guy's stomach that Morgan Freeman comes back and it's like pieces of the floor where the fridge has been moved and the the yeah. the, 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 the word what is it uh, gluttony is behind the, the fridge so they don't yep. know, you know, they've not got the seven deadly sins thing, like, right away. You know, it's not until after the second yeah. murder where it becomes clear that that's what's going on theme-wise. Though, it, though at this point, Somerset, he, he based off some evidence, like, there were two different grocery receipts there. So he understands that the killer tied this guy up, force-fed him, and then went back to the grocery store mm. in the middle. He understands how deeply methodical this guy is and that this wasn't just a random killing this was extremely thought out and he's already on the opinion of this is going to be a thing like this yeah, is this going is to be a pattern a that done. keeps showing up well, and so he, he immediately he, is like i'm out this is not what i want to do for my last week and he immediately backs all this up like because you say that he's noticing this in the crime scene but immediately mm-hmm. we get a scene where they're with the captain where they're with army and mm-hmm. he's saying like i don't want to be a part of this this is this guy did not, like, when you kill someone, right, if you hate someone and you want to kill them, you get in and you do it quickly. You don't risk the 12 hours or whatever long it took to do mm-hmm. what he did to this man unless the act itself is what you see is important, meaning that he's trying to make a statement with the way he's done this murder. Uh, mm-hmm. And then he also recommends that Mills shouldn't have this case either because he's too much of a rookie. He's like, 
which yeah, Wells had... is very upset by because he's like, no, I've been a homicide detective for five years. And he's like, yeah, but not here. That's the hero yeah. rookie. <laughs> in, the, in the crime scene, as they're investigating the guy, he sends Mills out to basically ask around neighbors. And later on in a car conversation, Mills basically calls him out and says like, hey, we're both detectives. I'm at the same rank as you. Like, I did my time knocking on doors. I don't need to be sent out there again. And like you said, he, he comes back out and be like, no, you were a detective in whatever city you were in. This is unnamed city. You ain't ready for this. Yes. Uh, so basically, yeah, it basically gets his way, though. They're not partnered anymore. Uh, they're split mm-hmm. up. Um, he doesn't, the captain doesn't give Mills the case, although he inadvertently does in a way because he gives Mills the second murder and then it ends up being that they're, they're working together and anyway. He, yeah, he keeps Somerset on it, even though he doesn't want to. Yeah. Uh, because he doesn't have anyone else to put on it. So, which mm-hmm. is fair enough, I suppose. Um, so it's the next day, because this is the Monday, because the movie gets the title cards where it comes up saying yep. Monday, right? So this was Monday. And then Tuesday, there's a second murder, and it's this high-profile district attorney um, who's been murdered in his office. Now, we don't actually see a body. This one's interesting, because we don't see how the body was left until we see some photographs later. All mm-hmm. we see in the scene is Brad Pitt, he's sitting around, and then there's that shot from above where you finally see the word greed written in blood on yep. the floor. And, it's and like, just some oh, other okay. blood stains spattered about. Yeah, so that sort of sets up that. and This is also the scene where, it, because it's such a high-profile killing, the mayor like has to answer questions for the press, and he basically outright says, like, hey, we're going to catch this guy. Whoever's committing these murders, you, you have my word, he will be caught swiftly. Of course, Mills being the guy on the case now is like, ah, jeez, <laughs> I got to I gotta stand up to his word now. Yeah, and so, yeah, and... Somerset gets the evidence that reveals the other word behind the fridge and mm-hmm. it's like, okay, we're dealing with seven deadly sins and he explains this to the captain, he explains it to Mills that this is someone who's going to do at least five more kills because that's the whole point and he goes out of his way, even though he's the case is technically Mills now, he goes out of his way to go to the library and do mm-hmm. research, right? And there's a really poignant little moment where he clearly knows the guards who work at this library and he sort of like shouts up at them like you've got the world of knowledge at your fingertips and you spend all night playing poker um mm-hmm. again it's kind of hinting at the apathy and and stuff like that yeah but uh he does all this research he gets all these books that are all related to the seven deadly sins and leaves a, an envelope for mills with whatever he's found you know just the, the cliff notes of his research to say hey this is maybe some stuff that you should know and he, he gives him the title saying you need to read all of these books they yeah. are very helpful to your case and then funny you say cliff notes because yes. as soon as he gets the book list he just goes out and buys the cliff notes well we see him try to read one of them first in his car and he just starts yeah. swearing and yelling because it's too too complex for his puny little human mind and then he uh like a, a the parole cop comes up and hands him a bag mm. and he's like oh thanks officer good work and then he pulls out the cliff notes and i, I love that the cliff notes have the same color scheme as the uh the books for dummies because that's why i actually thought it mm-hmm. was at first i thought it was going to be like uh you know dante's inferno for dummies <laughs> yeah i mean they're essentially the same thing it's just yeah. different branding um one thing i did want to bring up though because it did hit me slightly different was that line you said with the world of knowledge at mm. your fingertips i feel like that's hit so much harder in the age of smartphones and everything like that oh sure like it's mm. just that extra little bit of 
You you can do literally anything you want with a thing in your pocket, and you decide to watch TikTok. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's uh, I'm glad you said it that way because I was going to argue that you could be reading all these things on your phone. Those yeah, that you information could. exists there, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. Most people are just using annoying things like I mean, TikTok. It's it's totally okay if you use it to watch videos on movie reviews, though. That's highbrow. This is intellectual that's, content, damn it. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I, yeah, all this stuff is kind of building to this idea, and we get um, this scene where Mills moves into Somerset's office because it's now his mm-hmm. office, and Somerset just sort of goes off to the desk in the same in the corner of the same room, and it's just this awkward, quiet thing of him moving in, and it's all very awkward. And then eventually the phone rings, and they're all they're kind of polite about it, but he's like, "Oh, that's your phone now. That comes with the office." You say that, I feel like he was shunting it off on him. Like, it wasn't a thing of both of them were offering it to each other. They were hoping the other one would take it. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Um, but, I mean, Somerset does go to pick it up for a second and then realizes, oh, wait, it's not my phone anymore. Like, I don't have to do this. Yeah. Good luck. Uh, but then it's it's Mel's wife, mm-hmm. and he's sort of talking to her for a little bit. It's just sort of hushed voices, so you can't really hear. And then he leans over and says, hey... It's my wife. She wants to talk to you, which is a really funny line of dialogue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and he's like, okay. And he answers the phone. And we just keep hear enough of it to realize that he's accepting an offer to something. And he's like, afterwards, he hangs up the phone. And, uh, or actually, I should say, he hands the phone back to Mills, but his wife's already hung up. And yeah. Mills is like, all right, well, go on then. <laughs> what was that about? Tell me. Is like, oh, I've been invited to a late supper. I accept it. Yep. <laughs> so that this is a very important scene, though, because up until this point, they are they're button heads. You know, like Somerset's imposing his view in the world and not even giving Mills a say in anything. You just sees him as this young hothead. And I mean, the the, Mills, the scene, the well, scene uh, in the office literally describes it. They're too cramped up together they're stuck yeah, together yeah, and they yeah. don't want to be and mills likewise is is viewing him as this this old cop who's not willing to actually chase anything and this scene where they go to his place that night for dinner and he meets the wife the whole point mm-hmm. of this scene is that it humanizes both of them to each other there's there's a a bonding that happens over dinner jokes are mm-hmm. shared laughs are had about the fact that they live next to the train track and their entire apartment shakes every single time a train goes by and yep. you know it's it's all very you know heartwarming to a point and this is important of course because somerset for the themes of the film has to sort of like almost see like how good mill's life in theory is or could be based on mm-hmm. the life that he has at home right now obviously it's yeah. not perfectly happy because we find out she's not happy that they're living in this awful city and so on as, as the movie goes on but mm. the idea that he's seen this young guy who's not had the hope beat out of him yet, and I think that plays into like some of his decisions and mistakes that come as as the movie goes on. But that's a very important part of this that has to be established. Yeah, no, it's this it's this larger scheme of it of he has been isolated, as we said before, him going to bed, it's cold, it's alone, nothing like that. This is the first time where he it feels as though he's been put into this warm open sort of home and he's able to see the sort of things he's been missing so it like you said it it informs every decision he basically makes from here on out is this idea of i don't really want to ruin this for him 
I want him to try to keep this for as long as he can. Yeah, and his, his attitude for that is to, like, leave and get out and don't be here, mm-hmm. like, go somewhere else. And yeah. there's, a, there's some lines of dialogue here that I think are quite prominent, um, particularly when uh, Tracy is asking him if he ever, why is he not married? You know, I'm surprised you're not mm-hmm. married. And he's like, oh, I almost did once. And it kind of sets this idea up that maybe once upon a time he was actually kind of like Mills. Maybe not in every way, but certainly in the ways that count. And yeah. this idea of this regret of like what he was before this city like destroyed him uh, is an interesting thing that keeps coming back up. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's interesting that this is being asked by the if you know because Tracy isn't that much of her own character. She's kind of there as a representative of, of what she means to to Mills. Uh, she's part of his story, and it's interesting that this question comes from that representation from Mills inquiring about why somerset and the way that part of his life is and why it's missing mm-hmm. um so i think that's a very poignant way of like sort of like crossing those streams so yeah you know all good stuff and they get to talking about the case after dinner they're looking at the photos and the you know somerset finds himself being drawn in because he says that he's satisfying his own curiosity but it does kind of feel like no deep down you actually care you're trying oh, yeah. hard not to but you do this is every single one of these detective stories of, no, 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 I'm not going to get involved. This isn't yes. my case, or I'm not going to take this up. And then there's always something that just scratches that itch, something they need to understand. Yeah, uh, so the third murder... Well, during their, um, during their thing, during their little investigation into the photos, they noticed that there is a photo of the district attorney's wife that has yes. blood around yes. her eyes. And they theorize that it means that she's supposed to see something that will reveal some more information. Yeah, I mean, this is basically just to for them to get to a clue that was at the second crime scene that they've not found yet, yeah. which is she notices a painting's upside down. And it's one of these, like, modern art things, so, like, no one will know it's upside down unless you know which way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And sh- sure enough, they look behind it, and they're like, wait, we don't see anything. But then uh, Somerset dusts for prints, and there's a bunch of prints, but they're arranged to say, uh, help me, um, Mm -hmm. on the wall. And they're looking into it, and they make a point of saying that this, uh, these fingerprints are definitely not of the victim, which I thought they were going to be. Like, I had forgotten the detail here that was was going to come up. Um, Mm -hmm. But they're not the killer's fingerprints, of course, but they're not the victim's either, which is an interesting little... uh, caveat but they they do go ahead and run the fingerprints hoping they're the killers or at least getting some information as to who they are oh of course yeah. the case well but i, well, I, I do I, think well what this actually does is that it's intentionally leading them to the next victim right but based off of this scene in the terms of the whole movie this is the only time that i think this little extra clue bit just feels completely out of place for me I understand okay. that he's trying to lead them along to the next victim. I, I get that part, but it just seems to me a bit too abstract. It's my only real critique with it is like, not only is it not visible when they take down the painting, but it's using the fingerprints of the third victim to write out just the words, help me, which why help me as well? It's, no, it's, no, no, it's, that's obvious. Well, yeah, to, saying to help the third victim, but yeah. everything else that he's written at this point in notes-wise have always been quotes from, like, Dante or Paradise Lost or stuff like that. It's weird to me that this is a message where it's just so specific of 
hey, come and find me sort of thing, you know? Well, no, I mean, I understand that part of it. That that part because it's from perspective of the victim. That's why it says, help mm. me. Um, right. the, the critique that it feels a bit more abstract and like, oh, like he's expecting them to find this. Mm-hmm. Um, like he's actually left this breadcrumbs. It's maybe a bit too Riddler, a bit too like, yeah. you know, super brain. Uh, but I, I guess at a certain point it is a movie and oh, yeah. you only yeah. have characters do things like this. I think it's, yeah, it's one of those things where as the movie goes on, obviously he pivots his plans somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, once he sort of gets to know the detectives that are investigating the case, but um, I, I guess this is like you could cynically p- look at this as he thinks they're too dumb to actually just like find the third victim, so he has to point them in the direction of him. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I I'm trying to think: is there any other way they would have eventually gotten to the third victim? I don't. I don't think so, so because think this, yeah, because they make a point of saying that he kept paying the guy's rent, and the landlord said he was the best tenant ever because no one ever mm-hmm. heard a peep from him. So it sounds yeah. like it would have been months before someone, like maybe after he stopped paying the rent, eventually someone would have went to you know look in at the place. But yeah, uh, it would have been you know all of this is such a tight timeline of this, and it, we should also mention as well is that mm-hmm. when they find this guy, we'll talk about this scene in a second. But it's clear that he's been, like, this torture that he's been inflicting on him, he's been doing for a year. And you have Mm -hmm. to expect that the planning he's put into all of these murders has been taking place over a long time. Like, and for for them all to land on these specific days over the course of a week, he has to have, like, planned all this out and had them all in place. Even if he's not already attacked them and kidnapped them or whatever, he's at the very least got the entire thing mapped out in his head. He's he's made plans. He's he's got a procedure. Yep. He's going to stick to it. Um, as Morgan Freeman says, he's very methodical. He's 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 not you know he's he's not worried about uh, being like running on is, or caught in detail or anything like that. Yeah, which is what you said earlier about he adapts his plans when he gets into the cops. It doesn't feel so much like he adapts his plans as much as he had a bunch of different plans and he just picked the one that fits these cops the most. Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think that's open for, you know, theorizing. Because yeah, no, they never yeah. really go into what his plan was going to be if he didn't pivot to sort of focus on Mills. Like, that's obviously yeah. something that happens after he encounters them. And we never really get to know what the plan was without that. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah. But maybe that is a critique is that the first four or five are so, like, planned in advance. And then the last two are a bit more... Oh no, these have been altered because he's ran to Mills. Which makes me think, is there two other potential victims that he actually already killed? But he's just, he's leaving them out now because they don't fit the, the new story he's telling. They're just in yeah. a dumpster somewhere. <laughs> Three months after this movie ends, they're going to be like, why is why was there a guy who was shot in the head that says Wrath next to him? I don't get it. Oh well. Maybe, these are like his deleted scenes, you know. He was, he was oh, telling yeah. the story of the seven victims... And then he's like, you know what? No, no, I'm going to scrap those last two, even though I've already killed them, because I've got a better mm-hmm. ending in mind now. He he actually committed like 25 different murders, but it's only the ones that fit in perfectly that he writes the word on the wall. Hey, and hey. he's like, there you go. You've got to, you know, break a few eggs to make an omelet. You've got to, you know, do some rough drafts. you got to, you know, cut scenes. you got to... <laughs> yeah. this is This is the creative process. I mean, he does call it his art. He does call it his work, so... Fits the metaphor. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, so the cops run the prince, um, mm-hmm. and they get a match. Uh, our, our two lead characters fall asleep on a bench together, waiting for the fingerprint results. 
yeah. it's very sweet and innocent in a lot of ways. But also, I mean, this is the, I think this is the scene where they basically lay it all out, where Somerset says, like, look, I get out of town. Stop it. You don't... I, you're going yeah, to be broken uh, down if we keep doing the, this. This is the scene where he talks about... Uh, well, I think he talks about apathy here, but then it comes up again in the bar scene a little bit later mm-hmm. as well, uh, where it becomes more kind of on the nose. But yeah, um, but yeah so the, the cops get the SWAT team. They're all ready to move in. And it is worth mentioning, both Somerset and Mills are like talking to each other. Like, you know, this doesn't feel like our guy, does it? This is too... Like, he feel his motive... Because the guy whose prints they've, they've run, he does have a history. You know, he, he was, you know, arrested for rape and, like, armed mm-hmm. assault and things like that. But they're like, yeah, but this guy doesn't feel like he's got like a like a purpose. Like that, whoever's doing these killings has got some sort of grand message he wants to get across to the world with these killings. Yeah. This guy feels that like he's just a regular like, bad guy. This this guy was brought into jail and then eventually released for being like a pedophile. Like he's not this criminal mastermind. He's not this deep, larger, like idea guy. He's just yeah. a low level idiot more or less and when they get to his apartment john c mcginley who's the head of the swat team goes in Mm -hmm. and they find lots of car air fresheners dangling from the ceiling which presumably is because even for our killer well i'll just use his name john doe because i mean it's it's an alias anyway so it's like it matters we get it uh but presumably when he was doing all this torture eventually it started to stink and he's like okay mm-hmm. he tried to make this place smell so there's just tons of these little trees that you usually get at the front of cars just dangling mm-hmm. from the the ceiling uh but yeah this guy's been just basically been kept alive on a bed and just like he know, represents sloth yeah he's, he's cut off his hand of course and that's how he made all the fingerprints at the other scene mm-hmm. uh but this guy has just been He's been kept alive on like the barest way possible. So he's just technically alive, but he's just lying there and he's a skeleton. You know, this is the sort of mm-hmm. thing where like I don't think this is a person with makeup. This I am pretty sure this is just a a prosthetic no, of some kind. No, no, this is this is uh they this is a hired a man oh, okay. who was he was however tall he was, but he was only ninety pounds Oof. at time of filming. So they gave him some heavy prosthetics for uh like his mouth to make his teeth look like they're bigger than they are mm. as if his uh, cheek sunken in, but all the rest of them was 100% real. I hope he got healthier after this movie then. Cause that's not healthy. I hope so too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's not, not that's not good for you. Uh, but he, uh, yeah, he's, he's definitely got a look. So he's still technically alive when they find mm. him, but obviously not for long. Uh, yeah. he, he's, you know, the doctor says I, that his brain's mush because he's been kept in this state for so long that he is not... He, he can never talk to him. He can never give you an answer for anything. He's gone. Yeah, the, the doctor specifically tells Somerset, if you shine a flashlight at this guy, he's going to die. Like, yeah. there's nothing we can do for him. Uh, poor choice of words, though, because they did literally shine a flashlight at him when they came in the room. Yeah. <laughs> and he Before did survive. that moment, he was, he was going to be perfectly fine. It was only because they kept on pointing flashlights. Okay, 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 yes. He's got a threshold. He, he, he can mm-hmm. handle it seven times, but that eighth time is going to kill him. Yep. He's, he's done. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's kill number three. Um, kind of. Kind of. Um, and yeah. this is... So this is the part of the movie uh, where Somerset... It was when they're debating, like, you know, what's going on, and Somerset keeps saying he's just a lunatic, and that's... Or sorry, Bill says that, sorry. And mm-hmm. Somerset argues back, no, don't just dismiss him as a lunatic. That is a mistake, because... He's much smarter than that. You're not giving him credit, and it's showing yeah. the uh, the you know the naive side of of Mills and his uh his you know his lack of experience. 
Yeah, and Mills has a very simplistic view of the universe, like good guys and bad guys. There's intelligence and there's crazy. He doesn't understand that you can be both smart and evil, evil yeah. like this. Uh, but he does say something about, oh, just because the guy's got a library card and read all these books about the seven sins doesn't make him, you know, a genius. And mm -hmm. Somerset, his eyes light up, he gets an idea. And they go to the library and they're like, mm -hmm. okay, here's all the books that, that would maybe be checked out. And this is where we get a corrupt FBI flash coming yep. in. Um, it basically, it sets up that the FBI, they flag certain books in case people check them out, just to you know keep a, a track of what people are reading, just in case someone proves to be suspicious in the future. It's not mm -hmm. legal what they're doing, but they do it anyway. So they can't like admit that they've done this or like, and this comes up, of course, because when they go to the apartment of the, the, the most likely suspect on the list, this John mm -hmm. Doe, and John Doe shows up and it leads to a chase where they're firing guns and the whole big thing, Brad Pitt wants to go in and search the place and Morgan Freeman's like, no, 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 no. We have no legal reason that we should have came here. We can't do this. And they eventually get around this by paying off a homeless person to say she called in a tip. Yeah. <laughs> so so but, wanna, yeah. I want to jump in real quick here, go way back. Yes. So before even all the library stuff, when they're just in the office saying that he's crazy, Somerset gets a call, and it turns out it's Tracy. And Tracy needs someone to oh, talk that, to because oh, she's got okay, a big oh, secret. So yep. that's before this stuff. Okay. I, yep. Honestly, there's so many like details in the, the crime stuff in this. that this, Yeah. Remembering the sequence of... You're looking at this on a page, aren't you? You're, you're cheating. No. What? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. That's the only reason why you know to correct this is because you're looking at it. I would have just brought it up later on when we were talking about her, but fair enough. Okay. I just want to make sure it's not skipped over because it is a very important part of the movie. Well, I mean, I mean like, we'd have to talk about that when we're talking about her later true, on. True, true, true. But yeah, yeah. yeah, go on, right. If we're talking about it now, we're talking about that. All right. So yeah, uh, we get a call from Tracy and basically says, hey, I need to meet up. I need to talk to somebody. I can't talk to Mills. Mills is just asleep in the other room. And they go out to a diner and they just start talking about, like you said, how miserable she is in the city. It's not a place she wants to stay. And Somerset is basically pushing for what is the reason that he's here? And she reveals that she is pregnant. And Somerset just immediately is trying to figure out ways of not having this child grow up in this city. Because it is just not something he sees as well, viable at all. He specifically talks about his own experiences yes. and brings up the fact that when he was with someone that he almost married. And the reason mm -hmm. why that relationship broke down is because she got pregnant. And he had time to think about it, and he just couldn't—he couldn't really accept the idea of letting a child grow up in this world, in this city mm -hmm. that he's in. And the way he phrases this is—you know—it's quite a dark statement. He says is that over a few weeks he wore her down. That was his phrasing, yeah. meaning that he's basically convinced her over a set number of weeks to not have the baby. And the final—so that's on its own—is already quite a dark thing, where he's convinced mm -hmm. someone to. Whether or not she wanted the baby or not, he talked her out of it by wearing her down. That sounds quite bad. But yeah. then his final statement here, he says that there's not a day goes by that he doesn't... He knows that he made the right decision. But there's also not a day that goes by that he wishes he made another choice. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really very smartly specific way to word that statement. Oh, which yeah. is... 
he made the right choice from a logical, like, cold perspective, right? From a completely systematic point of view, he made Mm -hmm. this choice because he believes it was the right thing. But when he says that he wished he made a different choice, you know, he's basically saying, well, one, he wishes that he went with his heart, but also maybe that maybe the choice was just to leave the city then maybe you go and start fresh with your your missus somewhere else in a better place or whatever it it may be what it all boils down to is this idea of the apathetic logical choice and the sympathetic emotional one and that was where he sort of started falling down the hole of apathy he couldn't see a reason why not to and it's only with hindsight that his emotional side won out and he said no I really should have done something else there. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would maybe say it's not less the start and more it's the, it's the like the pit. consequence of it. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's the, it's the, it's where it's the turning point. It's the, it's the, it's, the, mm. it's the hump. It's where obviously these feelings were already there. Otherwise, he wouldn't be thinking that way at the time. But this is the moment where there was a point of no return where he made such a drastic decision to talk her out of having this kid that it grossly affected his life from that point on Mm. and maybe that woman leaving his life was like the last sort of hope that he really kind of had around him uh Mm. went with her and that's why it kind of makes what happens to mills later on when he in a much more dramatic way loses his wife is Mm. going to do to him he's actually even worse than mills is at the very end of the film he's just a zombie staring into the distance like he is he is a lost man and we'll get to all that of course but yeah. um I, I think that yeah that's that seems super important and it's i think what surprises me when we go back and watch seven again is just how many like or how few scenes gwyneth paltrow's actually in she's in yeah. a couple of moments with brad pitt when they're just in bed or whatever she's at the dinner scene and she's at this scene with morgan freeman and that is it like yeah. she's in no other scene she she, she she serves her purpose to the plot and that that is it which it's... is which is what i was saying before is that i feel like all of the scenes that really could involve her the things that aren't directly related to the plot of john doe are front-loaded they're all put in the beginning of the movie so we're like yes this is his family get to know them get to love them but as we progress through we're only going to elaborate on them we're going to talk about them we don't need to see them anymore because it's not you've already got this emotional connection to them i mean this seems probably close to the halfway point but yeah round it up but yeah, yeah it's still not it's not after the second act i guess is the biggest thing yeah it's not interrupting the flow well i think a big part of it is that you want this in the audience's mind because it's in somerset's mind so when mm-hmm. somerset's giving him more advice about you know leaving the city or you know not staying here because it just makes you apathetic or whatever mm. he he's doing this with the knowledge that this man might be becoming a father and it's kind of maybe right. further influencing his decisions um so we yeah. get to all the library stuff as we mentioned and it leads mm. them to this apartment and they don't know that they're they, they kind of think they're just you know grasping at straws they, they're, they're, they're not really convinced when they go to yeah. this place that they're actually going to find the guy They've got a list with a bunch of names on it. This just happens to be the most likely one, which yeah. may only be by an extra, like, couple percent. But sure enough, this guy, uh, you know, he's, he's this, he stops at the end of the hallway, Morgan Freeman notices him, and then this guy just opens fire on them. And the mm-hmm. chase ensues. You know, yep. uh, Mills chases after him, goes through a bunch of apartments, through windows, the guy keeps taking shots. 
and it all culminates in this big sort of alleyway sequence with the rain pouring down and mills gets tricked because he comes past this big truck and uh john doe is like waiting and worth mentioning here the camera is hiding john doe's face like there's, yes. there's no close-ups of his face if you see him he's in silhouette he's at a distance he's, he's always obscured in some way or mm-hmm. form um none more so than this big dramatic shot where brad pitt's down he's bleeding he's in the rain he can't defend himself and john doe has got a gun to his head and there's this great really shallow depth of field shot looking up sort of at the gun and like all, almost john doe's face but his face is so blurry and like in the yeah. rain that you can't see him and this is a big moment because this is the moment clearly where john doe decides that he is going to pivot he's, he's deciding mm-hmm. now that he's met this man and that this man has this rage in his eyes he's like oh no i'm changing my plans so i'm not going to kill him because he's going to be part of my final act and we don't yeah. know, obviously the first time you watch it, you don't realize that's why he's choosing not to kill him but on a, on a rewatch, uh you, yeah, you realize that's this moment simultaneously somerset finally catches up and it seems like he's leaving because another cop is coming up but you know he has enough time to pull the trigger and still escape so um one thing for that chase scene i really enjoyed is that the entire time you can feel like it's it's a whole apartment layout and there's tons of windows and doors and anywhere that john doe can run to you feel like brad pitt doesn't know where he is He has to keep on turning corners carefully because he doesn't know if he's just going to be waiting there with a gun. So he's slowing down and then he just manages to catch a glimpse of the guy and uses that to determine where he goes. But it's not one of those chase scenes where it's just, oh, yeah, one guy's running and the next guy's right behind him. And it's just that way for the entire scene. It's got this tension to it, not only because it's a chase scene, but because there's this uncertainty as to how far away is he did he manage to escape with every next shot yeah and he's always just kind of one step ahead and uh mm-hmm. maybe because he knows the layout more than anything else maybe mm-hmm. because he's just that smart but either way he's he's keeping on top of him um so obviously brad pitt you know mills is angry after this and he kicks in the mm-hmm. door despite the fact that somerset makes it clear that they've got no legal reason to be here we have to have a, a trail that leads here uh, so like I said, to pay off a homeless person to just say that she suspected something <laughs> and called yeah. it in. Uh, so they go in and they've got like a whole team of forensic people in here. They're looking at things. Uh, we didn't mention before, there's a scene where they're at a mm-hmm. prior location and there's like a, a photographer, like a news reporter photographer. Yeah. They're who... outside of a sloth's crime scene. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, they're at a stairwell in the building. Yeah, mm-hmm. but they're outside the apartment. And this guy, like, you know, snaps some photographs and Brad Pitt gets angry and tells him to piss off. Um, but it turns out later, and again, we never see this guy's face, but it turns out this was John Doe. Like, he was taking yep. these photographs. Um, he even calls his own phone uh, to talk to Mills and say, hey, I want to say I respect you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm looking forward to you seeing what's coming over the next few days. I basically. respect you and I admire you. Yes. <laughs> uh so you know obviously they find like plans for different things and i appreciated that they saw some photographs of the next victim Mm -hmm. um yeah he has a whole like shrine built up that he clearly was going to fill with mementos from each of the different sins first three are already filled in but then the fourth one is just a receipt for a leather shop and then a um picture 
of a woman that's all blurry. Yeah. They can't well, barely make out who it is. I think I think the woman's well, they're both women, the, the victims technically, but the mm-hmm. I think the, the the woman who is uh like vain, she's the one who's next. I think uh, in her oh, bed. Oh yeah, yeah, right. She, she's the one who gets like her face cut off, and this this actually was probably the most jigsaw sounding one because it sounded like he gave her a choice. Oh, he did. Yeah. yeah, where he seemingly cut off her face or cut off her nose and mutilated her face and glued pills in one hand and a phone in the other and basically said you can call and survive you can call for an ambulance and like live the rest of your life but your face is going to be horrific and Mm. you won't be this beautiful supermodel that you've been up until now or you can take the pills and kill yourself and she chose the pills yeah out of all of the murders i feel like that one is the least important to the plot i don't feel like it really adds anything especially because it isn't so much a thing of he killed her as much as it is a jigsaw-esque you get to choose whether you live or die sort of thing yeah but to be fair though the final one's also a choice as you know for, for oh, Mel. Yeah. so it's not like it's out of the out of a line for for like right. some, some of his mo yeah i guess if you really look at it each of the murders up till this point kind of explain the little niches the little exceptions that he's willing to make like the lust or not lust the sloth one points out that they don't all need to die it's not a matter that they're killed it's a matter that they're punished that's yeah. the primary focus yeah so sure enough she, she makes this choice and, and, you know, and this mm. is probably the one that's glossed over them the most because the other one with the leather receipt and they go to this shop and it's like hey you know this receipt blah 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 is like, oh mm. yeah i made this for the guy and we don't see what it is at first we just sort of like we see their reaction to this photograph of whatever this guy's built for him and mm. then when we finally get to the crime scene um at like a I don't know if it's like a brothel or if it's just like a motel that she used for prostitutes, but... Yeah, it sounds like a little mix of both. Yeah. But they go down into this seedy place and there's like this harsh red lighting in the hallway, so the atmosphere's just there. Mm. And they go in, and this guy, this is the guy from Alien Resurrection, who's like crying with a towel around him saying, he made me do it, he made me do it, get this thing off of me. And there's obviously like a body on the bed that's like, you know, bloody and covered up. And you're like, wait, what the hell is this? And then you finally see this photograph, and it's basically like a strap-on with a knife like attached to the like the, yeah. the cock. And John Doe made this guy, you know, have sex with a prostitute wearing this thing. So effectively just made him kill her um, yep. and said that he had a gun in his mouth the whole time. And this, this guy Which, is distraught, of course. He's, I was going to say, his performance is top tier because he is hyperventilating. He's like <laughs> breaking down on camera. It well, is he's top been, tier He's been forced to murder someone in like a very horrific way. <laughs> it's, you yeah. know, like the, he, this man's going to never be okay again. He's, I, don't, I, I just got to say, during this scene, as he's describing what he did to Somerset, like I took a step back from the movie and I just appreciated him as an actor, not even as a character, just as an actor of like, good on you, man. You really gave that your all. I love the phrasing the way you said that. What he's describing what he did to Somerset. To Somerset. As, as if yeah. he did it to him. <laughs> Look, he still hasn't been able to take it off. It's been glued to his body. So <laughs> Oh dear. Uh so but this is at five, right? And it's when mm. they're coming back from investigating actually no i think i swapped these two around i think i think they're at the yeah, Woman's apartment say. yeah because they're coming back to the precinct when the cab arrives that has john doe in it mm-hmm. um which i do want to something that we've kind of glossed over here this movie has consistently and constantly been 
during downpours. It has been raining this entire movie. Except the up, third act, yeah. Like, up to this exact point. The moment that we see, uh, they they have Somerset and Mills. To, Mills goes and spends the night with his wife. Somerset stays up throwing his little switchblade at a dartboard. And the next morning he comes in and he, I think it's Sunday at this point. It might be Saturday. No, it's Sunday. It's Sunday this point. Sunday. Yeah. And also, so, just, just on that before you go on, um, mm-hmm. the contrast again of Mills like snuggling up to his wife in bed with the warm lighting and, or sorry, Mills, I keep swapping the names. And, no, and Somerset can't sleep and gets up and starts throwing his knife at the dartboard. It's this mm-hmm. idea that Mills can go to sleep because he has this like normal life waiting for him at home. Where Somerset's left with just like the world around them, yep. uh, you know. So again, doing some smart things with the, the contrast. Yep. But then they, uh, like I said, the rain stops the moment that Somerset comes in and says, "I'm going to stay on this case until it's either he's done killing people, yeah, or until we catch him." Yeah, that, that's when, the, and it's it's almost like yeah, the the weather itself is cleared because he's made the. Mm-hmm. The noble choice to like see this one through effectively he's made the choice to care he's yeah. made the choice to open back up there yeah no it's very good it's right after he's not been able to sleep at night it, it, it mm-hmm. thematically all lines up and this is when john doe walks in covered in blood and we missed i think you mistakenly the first time you watched this think it's oh it's the woman that he killed at the apartment's blood yeah yeah but it's not it's gwyneth paltrow's blood <laughs> but he comes in just says detective and they all you know arrest him He's, you know, blood-sucking lawyer comes in and... Uh, I mean, it's public defender. It's not specifically his lawyer, but uh, yes. Yeah, I don't know. He feels like he's a blood-sucker. I mean, oh, no, he's slimy uh, as hell, but yeah. Yeah, but he, uh, he basically gives them John Doe's terms, is that there's two more bodies, which they're expecting, to be fair. It's not that far-fetched. Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhere. And he's going to show Mills and Somerset where they're buried, but only those two, because he respects them. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's his conditions. And if you do that, if you take him out to these bodies, you'll find the bodies and then he'll write a full confession and you won't have to uh, bother, like, you know, there will, there will be a jury. It'll just be a straight, yeah. he confessed, well, if, he's guilty. If they don't do it, he's going to plead insanity. And the lawyer's like, and I'm pretty sure that I can get him off on insanity. Based on the crimes, yeah, based on the crimes committed, that seems like a, a fair mm-hmm. statement. I, I really do like this scene, though, because they they take the time to walk through all of the different ways just to show how much John Doe has planned this out in that it's like he, I think Somerset brings up the point of, well, if we don't do it and you plead insanity, this conversation we're having right now will be admissible in court and therefore we'll be able to show that he is competent. And then John Doe has already told his lawyer in that case, tell them that the, uh, the public won't like the fact that the cops weren't willing to investigate to find these two bodies when it comes to light in public. So he's thought through every one of these different options that these cops have to force them down the path of, you have to go with me to find these bodies. Yeah. Uh, so he's going to get what he wants. He, you know, he get, mm-hmm. And the SWAT teams in the helicopter, they're watching from afar. There's a great stylistic choice here where every so often when he's talking in the car to the two detectives, where it'll cut to an exterior shot and you'll actually hear it through the comms because they're listening mm-hmm. in. Because uh, there's, there's a little scene before, and it's a little happy scene where they're joking together, where they're shaving their chests because yeah. they're going to get wiretaps put in their chests. So they're shaving their chests so the tape won't obviously rip off the hair, which, you know, painful, I understand. Uh, 
But they're joking about it. Uh, Brad Pitt says, oh, if I accidentally shave off my nipple, can I get workers' comp for that? And they, they start, you know, they, they'll have a little laugh together. And it's yeah. like, okay, something bad's about to happen because they are the happiest and most friendly they've ever been. Yep. <laughs> right the before moment, moment that they share a laugh together, you know that something horrible is happening. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And Brad Pitt mentions his wife a couple times just to remind you. Oh, he's got a wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just yep. keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. By the way, I wanted to bring that we moved a bit too quickly. Um, I, I'm going to officially petition that anytime we have to mention Gwyneth Paltrow's blood, we call it goop considering that is her brand and she wants to be Uh, referenced as goop so all right sure cool (laughs) i'll take my tiny victories anyway um so yes they they go out to privacy obviously john doe talks a bit when he's in the car there's a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. about how he's been chosen how he's not special uh the the cops particularly mills mostly points out but you enjoy what you do although i think mm-hmm. somerset's the one who says isn't that contradictory to being chosen he's like hey i i don't you know say that i don't take pleasure in my work there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with that but you know uh, this is a purpose uh and i think what's really interesting about this scene and you know not to compare everyone to batman but there there was a little bit of this here that was making me think oh there's, there's some matt reeves batman in this a little bit because when john does talking about his view of the world and how it needs to be punished because everyone like you know Ah, oh, these sluts on street corners spreading diseases. Oh, this fat mm. man who makes you want to vomit because he's so disgusting. Like, all these people need to be punished. Obviously, it's much more extreme, but it's you can kind of like connect the way Somerset talked about the apathy and how the best thing is to not care about it. Um, This character's coming in and, like, he's caring about it, but he's caring about it in, like, the most extreme, unhealthy way possible. Mm-hmm. And it kind of felt like, you know, as he's talking and Somerset's hearing him, He's almost like having to reevaluate the way he's been talking about the world a little bit. Yeah. No, it's definitely a dark mirror sort of thing of here's this person who feels the same way about the world that you do, but he's clearly going about it in a much more unhealthy way. So you need to define the lines that separate you from him. Yeah. And I think when when they stop, you know... uh... Well, hold on. Before we stop, one thing I really want to get to, two things actually. First off, during this entire sort of breakdown that John Doe is having, where he's explaining like, oh, you you consider these people I killed to be actual people. They aren't. They did all these horrible things. And he lists through all of the crimes, the sins that they've committed. Mm-hmm. And he, during his little monologue, mentions murderers. And then Brad Pitt jumps right on that. Mills is like, oh, murderers, like you, like you. But it's such a smart little choice where... John Doe doesn't stop. He doesn't break his stride. He continues talking, just completely ignoring what Mills is saying because he knows that he's a hypocrite here, but he doesn't care. He he sees himself well, as in the right. His goal here, if, if nothing else... And uh, that's the second thing I want to get is, to. Is to rail him up. Is to make yep. Mills angry. And Mills yep. does get angry. He starts swearing at him. He starts yelling. And you know, he's all about you know the rage in your eyes. You know, that's what he brings up in a minute after they stop. Because mm-hmm. obviously, once they get out, there's this great tense sequence. They're out in the desert, basically, and you know, there, there, there's a road and there's some power lines, but otherwise, it's just desert. And yeah. this van starts pulling up because that's the thing is that he's been saying that we have to be there at seven o'clock. He's he's, he's mm-hmm. given them a specific time, and this van pulls up, and it turns out to just be a delivery driver. But there's a whole tense build up to it where this van's driving up, and it's like, oh god, has he got accomplices? Like, who is this? What's happening? Mm-hmm. 
and Somerset gets this package and he tells the guy to just run away, you know, leave the van and all the rest Which, of it. <laughs> like 30 seconds later, he's like, I'm setting him up the road, make sure someone comes and picks him up. But before he says that, I'm like, you just killed this guy, man. You're sending him up this long <laughs> winding road in this beating sun. He's going to die out there. I'm sure, uh, you know, a, a uniformed cop, you know, pulled yeah. up and got him. Well, yeah, that's what Somerset said. Like, make sure someone comes and picks him up. But it takes him 30 seconds to get that. And I'm just, that entire time, I'm like, you're just making him leave without his car? That's cold, Somerset. Or it's, it looks quite warm, actually, out there. No, it's the desert. It gets cold at night. True. It's not nighttime, though. It's 7 o'clock. They're <laughs> definitely more than an hour out. Okay, it's, it's, it's bordering on nighttime, but it's not nighttime mm. yet. It's still sunny. All right, all right. Right. Regardless, he got a car. Which, so... which actually, that tells us it's summer, which puts the the rain that's been coming down in even more perspective. Mm. Which yeah, yeah, and also I guess the rain would also kind of discount the fact that you know, as much as you're saying you can work out that it technically is Los Angeles, I don't think it really is. No. Mainly, mainly because thematically, it's clearly supposed to be this fictional city without a name, but also because the torrential rain for like six days. <laughs> I mean, I do want to, I, it kind of ruins this thematic idea of it, but I have read numerous interviews with this, um, that apparently the reason that they have the entire first half in rain is just because the first day that Brad Pitt showed up for filming, it was raining and they figured, well, we can fake like it's raining if it's not raining. So why don't we just have the whole movie be raining? And that way we don't have to stop for bad weather. So... That's why they did that. And the only reason they didn't do it for the finale is because they couldn't get rain machines out into the desert like that. Do you know what? Sometimes great things come from limitations. And yes. That, that is an example, because I think thematically the idea of the rain stops as soon as Somerset chooses to care is such a beautiful, poignant thing that even if it's mm -hmm. not intentional, it's perfect. I don't care. Yeah, oh, same. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's too perfect. Yeah. Uh, so... Morgan Freeman, Somerset, he looks in the box. <laughs> Which, the fact that right before this, they were calling in like, oh, calling the bomb squad and all that. It's a real ballsy move from Somerset to be like, I'm going to open it up. I'm going to see what's inside. I'm thinking it's not a bomb, but mm. can't know for sure. So he opens it up and obviously he reacts to what he sees and he comes running mm. up. And at this point, of course, through all this, John Doe is just trying to rail up uh, Mills. He's just saying things and eventually he mentions his wife he mentions her by yep. name and obviously mills reacts to that and is like wait what did you just say like how do you know he's mm -hmm. like hey it's not that hard to like you know pay off a cop to give some information about someone he works with which they set up earlier in the movie as well yeah with when the camera guy shows up he's like how did they get here so fast and morgan freeman specifically says that there's cops who sell that info from the precinct and what's so this effectively becomes as, as the truth begins to come out uh, that he's killed his wife and, mm. you know, Somerset never confirms it, but by the way he refuses to, like, refute it, he basically confirms it by omission. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he, John Doe, then, of course, brings up, you know, she begged for her life and also the life of her unborn child. And then, obviously, that makes Brad Pitt do a double take. And the delight on John Doe's face as he's like, he didn't know. Uh, and it just it's this confirmation you know because somerset did know and th mm. th this, this effectively becomes this that this sort of battle for his soul where somerset is saying don't shoot him it's what he wants because john doe's plan here is that 
he himself is envy because he envies the normal happy life that yep. uh, Mills has. And in a way, you could say that that maybe also ties to Somerset and not in a bad way, but in some small innocent way, maybe he did envy the fact that, you know, Mills yeah. has this happy family life that he almost had and, you know, didn't get to keep. Like you said, it's it's that dark mirror yeah, of yeah, you absolutely. are the same as your villain. And then the idea is that he's number six and that makes Mills number seven because he'll be wrath. He'll be killing for vengeance and that will mm-hmm. complete the seven. And Somerset's arguing for his soul. And I think one of the things that I like about this is that Somerset's trying to say, no, you'll give him what he wants. Don't do this. Don't give in to this. I love the idea that for a lot of this movie, he's effectively been feeding Mills with advice that he now has to try and fight against. Like, he has to sort Mm -hmm. of counterbalance his own advice here. Because the whole movie, he's been saying how there's no hope. This is a nihilistic world. You can't change anything. And... Despite all that, in this final scene, Somerset's goal is to stop the impossible and try and stop him from like losing who he is by killing this yep. man. And that's what makes the narrative journey of this whole movie so beautiful. And mm-hmm. obviously it's sad that he fails. You know, Brad Pitt does take the shot. He kills John Doe. Um, he takes the shot, and then he takes the shot, and then he takes the shots. shot four more times. <laughs> yes. And that's the thing about it is that, you know, Somerset doesn't try to stop him physically. Once he takes the shots, he just like stands there and sort of like has yeah. the the you know the, the failure on his face. And the final moments of this film are Brad Pitt staring into space because he's a lost man, like I said earlier. And Somerset doesn't say he's going to stay on as a cop because you you could see how that might be his choice at the end based on this mm-hmm. character arc. But he just says it'll be around. And then the film ends with him sort of saying a quote to the audience as he walks off in this gorgeous wide shot where he says, Ernest Hemingway once said that the world is a fine place and it's worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. And that's what the movie ends with. And Mm -hmm. despite the way this ended, this movie's very much about him learning to care again. And it's, yes, he fails at the end and Mills, you know, he loses who he is. He gives up his soul and gives in to the killer's demands, and obviously it's mm-hmm. sad that he's lost his wife and all that. But despite yeah. all that, the fact that there was someone willing to fight for in Mills is sort of made him realize that it's worth fighting for again. And that's kind of yeah. that's the sort of the silver lining, if you will, on this you know depressing as hell ending to the movie. Um, yeah, so. I, I mean, I think if you if you had the same quote at the beginning of the movie being said by Somerset, it would be the world is a fine place and worth fighting for we agree to disagree. Like he doesn't mm. think either part of that is true. It's only by the events of the movie. We hit the end where he says it is worth fighting for. That's the main, that's the change that makes Somerset more or less the main character because Mills. Yes. He goes through an arc, but it's not as clearly defined as no, Somerset's. No. Somerset's arc is the arc of the film. It absolutely mm. is. Um, it, It's, you know, it's this, the, it's the old man finding the will to live again, effectively, but in a much more yep. specific arena. And it's, you know, it's mm-hmm. nihilism versus optimism, like we said. Um, and what's so good about it is that, like, it tackles this subject in a way that is always engaging to watch because it is kind of this fight for wanting to care again. Because when I compare about nihilism, when I complain about nihilism in, like, Zack Snyder films, I'm complaining mm-hmm. because it's nihilism without any, like, like story that gives you a sense of like hope that you can get out of the nihilism or anything like that yeah. it's just it's just a nihilistic tone overall 
Whereas this has a purpose, this is trying to say something by the end, and it's like, even when the world's as shitty as it can be, even when it's awful, and you know that it's awful, and you feel beat down by it, it's still worth fighting for. It's still worth trying to make it better, even yeah. if everything around you is that bad. With with the Zack Snyder films, I think for me the biggest problem is, I don't think that any character should want to be nihilistic. I think every character, even if they are nihilistic, should be willing to take whatever chances they can to get out of that. Somerset managed, like we see in the first scene, he cares about this kid. He wants to not be nihilistic. He's, yeah, he's grasping at threads anytime he can, even if right. he's not admitting that he's doing it, yeah. But then you throw in Zack Snyder movies and it just feels like his characters are like, yeah, no, the world sucks and I'm not looking to change that. It's like, well, yep. no, that's not what we need out of this character and that's why you that's why you give him superman (laughs) Uh. yeah um no i i think it's 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 so funny how there there are things in this you know we i compared one point to the batman i think also Mm. the idea of the the bad guy getting himself apprehended intentionally as part Mm. of his plan is also something that's in the dark knight and what's funny about that is that after the dark knight did that like, we got sick of so many movies copying The Dark Knight, but interestingly, I think The Dark Knight was kind of pulling a playbook out of this. Yeah, no, I think this movie, obviously, the idea of detective noir movies has existed since, like, the 20s. They've been around forever. Yeah, yeah. I I think that this movie is what manages to kind of codify a lot of the modern tropes of the dirtiness of the detective movies, whereas before it's always... I'm not always, but a lot of the detective movies before this are like the buddy cop movies. It's the ones where it's pretty lighthearted and they're solving this big like conspiracy or something. But it's always this like lighter tone, whereas this one goes in feet first into just this dour, dirty world. And there's so many little examples of like just this nihilism around them. Like there's a moment where they find the uh the third victim on the bed, right? The one that's been held captive for a year. Mm-hmm. And John McGinley leans in and just whispers, You deserve this. Yeah. Not it's it's <laughs> at one point when they come into the scene, you think it's because he's saying it because he thinks he's the killer. You think like maybe he didn't really catch up to the fact of no, mm. this guy isn't the guy you're looking for. But it, you realize that he's because he is a small time criminal who has gotten out since then. He's referencing that fact. He's referencing yeah. the fact that he thinks this is deserved punishment for that. A year of torture and being tied down to this bed is deserved punishment for these small time crimes. Yeah, you got that. You got all just our little things throughout of characters who, you know, minor characters who are just there for you know you know whatever reason right and the, the mm. way they react to the world around them and that's not to say there's not moments of like again you know like as much as there's the, the little point that's made about the the knowledge and all that like you know the, the guy the security guys at the library seem fine like they seem like they're yeah. just you know having a nice night uh that's a that's the thing there's there's apathy there's not caring and then there's full nihilism of yeah like believing the world is crap a lot of these characters are apathetic they don't care to you know, go out and see the beauty of the world or whatever, but they aren't nihilistic. They aren't believing the world is this horrible place. They're just getting by like everybody else. I mean, I think that the argument with those security guards who are playing poker is that the way to look at it is less that they're not, you know, taking part of the knowledge that's at their fingertips. It's more that, no, they have found something that makes them happy in this cold world and they're they're doing it. So, yeah. you know, it's arguably more healthy than 
a lot of the characters that are in the film. So, yeah. you know, you've got that. And, uh, you know, I think Gwyneth Paltrow's character, uh, Tracy, obviously mm. she's largely there to represent um, stuff for, for Mill's character. And, and even Somerset's character in a lot of ways in that she's, like, the representation of, like, what he had once upon a time. And the life lost. he gave up. Yeah. yeah. So you've, you've got that element to it. And her, her fears and almost the idea that Mill's desire to come here and prove himself is what causes everything to happen to her because she didn't want to come here and she hates mm. it here and she's too scared to tell him because he's got this sense of purpose you know yeah. and his idealism you know at one point he even jokingly refers to himself as serpico and she sort of like <laughs> says it back to him and you know serpico was this you know the, the one good cop in, in new york city when everything was corrupt uh there's a famous al pacino movie made about it but it was based on a true story so they're mm-hmm. they're you know they're drawing on real history here uh so this idea of him joking that he's Serpico does present this hero complex, this idea that he wants to change the world, he wants to do good. Um, yeah. But he's so gung-ho about it that he does need the wisdom of the older cop to kind of like, you know, make him approach things, have the patience, have the 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 methodical attitude to actually solve these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, he never lasts long enough to, to get to that stage, really. Yeah, I mean, once again, bringing up Batman... I think that <laughs> I think that they the, these two both are exactly half of Batman, where Detective Mills represents that heroic drive, the idea of wanting to do good, wanting to improve the world, whereas Somerset is the smarts. He's the detective. He's the mm. one that's able to figure it okay. all out. Both of them combined can be something greater than the sum of their parts, but individually they kind of need each other to balance that out up until the end where... Somerset is able to take on a bit of that optimism that Mills had, and you feel that he's grown from it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, well, there you go. Seven, it's very good. And then the strangest ending credits I've seen in a while of scrolling in reverse. Yeah, not, I mean... I still don't understand the stylistic choice of that. I'm not sure why, but it caught my eye. I mean, it's it's weird. I, I like I don't know if I'd say the word strange because it's actually easy to just explain because it's just literally it's going down instead of up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that simple. But even then, like when you get to the end where it's like you know all people featured were not like fictional and any resemblance mm-hmm. to living or dead, even those lines are moving up instead of it being like a block of text. Oh, okay. you read top to bottom like it's still you read lines up i so I, admit, I turned a... it off before it got to the very end of the credits so i didn't see that part but mm. just in case there was an mcu post credit scene in this i had to be sure <laughs> well we're uh mel gibson and danny glover shot from lethal weapon and say hey yep <laughs> somerset we need we need, we need some you think you're the dice. only grizzled detective you ventured into a bigger world <laughs> Yeah, you need to babysit uh, Joe Pesci for a while. Uh, yeah. Here you go. Um, so, no, interesting. Uh, all right, so I guess we're out well, of the ratings. Uh, one thing, just because we didn't talk about it at the beginning, because uh-huh. we didn't want to reveal it, how did you feel about Kevin Spacey's performance as John Doe? Um, yeah, he's good on that. Obviously, it's weird to talk about now because Kevin Spacey's yeah. Kevin Spacey. But... Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, it's easy to separate, I think, and just look at the the work as it is. Um, yeah, he's he's good in this role. He's obviously he comes across as this devout believer in what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it works. Um, you know. Yeah, I agree. I think that 
there's a couple parts in there where I feel like, strangely enough, it feels more of how I just see Kevin Spacey as a person. Like he's he's kind of just creepy in just a lot of subtle ways. This is a, a case where the character and who he really is. I mean, obviously not as exact match, but mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's enough of an overlap in terms of like just a, it being a bad person that you're like, ah, oh, this kind of fits for. Yeah, yeah I can see Kevin Spacey just now. going around killing seven people. Yeah, that seems right. I think for legal reasons, you'd probably say, uh, you know, potentially or something at the end of no, that. No, that's how I see it. Okay. I'm not saying he does it. I'm saying I could see that happening. Okay, okay. No, yeah, but I'm if not, I have to, I'm, allegedly. I'm playing it safe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I... Yeah, I, I think, you know, obviously the main two cast are the, the ones that carry the whole film. Yeah. Um, I think... You have the grounded nature of Morgan Freeman. It's so weird to think that he just like, became successful so late in his age, you know, his life, yeah. compared to like most actors. Compared but, to even Brad Pitt next to him. Yeah, but he's been a staple now for, for 30 years. Whereas, mm-hmm. yeah, Brad Pitt, you know, he, he was in a few things in the 80s. Of, well, actually, no, I think his first movie, I want to say was Thelma and Louise, which was right at the start of the 90s. But um, he, obviously, in the mid-90s, you know, this is the same year as 12 Monkeys, um... And he'd be going to be in a bunch of stuff over the, you know, the next several years. Um, back when movie stars were still kind of movie stars, that's mostly faded away now. Like it's not really that important if Brad Pitt's in a movie anymore. You know, it's just kind of yeah. the name, same with anyone else for the most part. But uh, that's this was obviously kind of a star-studded pair to to throw in your movie at the time. Um, oh yeah. So yeah, seven. All right, what well, you rating it? Can I say seven? I won't, but can I? Um, I, I get the joke, but yeah. Yes. I, something tells me you're going higher than that. Yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, so obviously, like I said, really enjoyed it. It's such a strong outing for Fincher right off the bat. Um, one thing I didn't bring up, which I'll just gloss over, is because of all these studio issues he had with Alien 3, mm-hmm. basically when the ending to this movie was put down, the studio would not stop trying to change it. They did not want it to end with Mills losing that battle for the soul. He They wanted him to come out on top in some degree. And Fincher, Brad Pitt, and Kevin Spacey all just basically stood as a front and said, if you change that, we're walking. So I'll give him credit that he really stuck to his guns and he knew that that's how the movie had to end. He had to have just that strong, poignant ending of... You can't win them all. Is there is a level of the world sucks that you just can't move past. So, with all that in mind, with the style of it, the way that it explores these themes, I'm gonna go ahead and say this one is. I got this one's a nine. This one's a good solid nine. The only reason I don't want to give it that little bit extra is because I know there's better from him, in my opinion, coming down the road. I really do enjoy several other films higher than this, but. This one was great, no matter what. It stands the test of time, even now, approaching 30 years later. Yeah. Um, I... That's maybe my favorite Fincher movie, honestly. I don't know okay. if there is another one that I rank higher than it. Um, I'm going to agree with the 9, though. I think it's excellent. I think it holds up. I think the the actual character themes underneath feel it feel like it's telling a bigger story that, that mm-hmm. you know that's not just as a serial killer killing people in a bunch of sick ways it's telling a bigger story than that and it's the sort of thing that i think elevates it beyond the sum of its parts in a lot of ways 
Mm. Um, performances are good. The direction, the visual style, everything's so captivating. Um, if anything, the only critiques that I would give it, other than maybe the other movies have copied enough stuff that maybe you'd be sick of some of the the style, is yeah. um, I will say, well, I like the big climactic point to the chase in the rain. Um, I do think it, like it delving into a bit more of an action scene does feel a little tonally out of place for the it rest of the movie. Like- it feels like one of the notes that he had to take from the studio was wake the audience up an hour in. <laughs> yeah. It's maybe just like, rather than have it be such a fight, like you still get to the point where he's got the upper hand and shows he's not to kill him, but just the mm. actual fight in the rain just felt a little bit like, ah, uh, this doesn't feel necessarily like the rest of this movie. You know? Yeah. But you know, mm. it's, it's a very minor thing though. It's, uh, it's excellent. So um, mm. nine out of 10 for me as well. Uh, I think it's safe to say it's making the cut, but I suppose the other yep. question is, is it going higher than that? Is it a cut above? I mean, for a cut above, I think the defining question is, is this a must-see movie? Is this something that everyone should definitively see at some point? And I I feel like it's just shy of that, but it's so super close to it. So I'm I'm personally saying makes the cut not a cut above but if you have any argument against that i am immediately willing to bump it up what's interesting about you saying that mm. is i just said this may be my favorite fincher film now i'm not necessarily saying that i'm arguing for it to be a cut above mm-hmm. i could go probably either way on it but you would have to acknowledge the possibility then that I am going to fight you <laughs> on every other Fincher movie <laughs> making that that no no that that's fine that's fine that's fine I think when I say when I say a couple of the movies there's really only like one maybe two depending on how I feel on the rewatch that I'm going to put above this movie okay okay now admittedly a lot of these movies we're going to do I have not seen in a while so it's entirely mm. possible that much like this one some of them will rise in my my opinion. Mm-hmm. um and there's one or two that i'm not that fond of which you know might be hot takes when we get there yeah um so yeah we'll see how that goes uh but okay well we'll say it's just making the cut okay i i think there's an argument that it should be a cut above because yeah, it, it no. does feel like, like it, it feels like one of the most prominent and pulp culture films in the 90s for a start um mm-hmm. and as we've said before in this review it did kind of establish a lot of like style and tropes that would be used for a long time so yeah no i mean just the very fact that i think you could talk to nearly anybody who has any film knowledge at all say what's in the box and they're going to know exactly what you're talking about that just talks to the level of permeation that at least the climax of this movie has if not the movie overall yeah what's in the box yeah (laughs) Um, we almost made it the whole review without doing it but uh, well, you brought it up again. I realized, ah, oh, no one's done the line. We should do yeah. the line. Mm-hmm. All right. So, okay, maybe controversial, but we're saying it makes the cut. Uh, mm-hmm. But despite the fact that we both give it a nine, it's not quite making a cut above. So, nope. That's fine. Um, but establishing this baseline is dangerous because now every time you want to say something's a cut above and I disagree, I'm going to say it's lower than seven. <laughs> I am then going to point to several of our extra reels films that we put as a cut above and say it's above those. I mean, 
that's a different scale. Extra reels is its own scale. Oh, okay. All you know right. it is. You know it. You cannot sit there and tell me that the 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 show that is primarily based around Neil Breen films is mm-hmm. not on a different scale entirely. I mean, I've been putting it on the same scale. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> oh dear anywho that's seven uh so next week we'll be looking at fight club uh but if you want his next film in his filmography the game that is uh the bonus episode over at patreon.com slash mailfuzz tv so go check out uh that but that is uh that is the show you can also support us if you can't uh you know afford to pay us over on patreon that's okay you know hit hit the like button subscribe all that and please do i never do this enough uh, cross promotion but uh, check out the other movie podcast screams after midnight which is the horror movie podcast and the atomic cinema experiment which is the science fiction movie podcast uh so make sure you check out those as well if you want a lot more movie discussion but that is the show so thank you very much for joining us we always appreciate it keep watching movies uh, or just said what's in the box um well if you if you need to purchase your your strap-on stabbing weapon then you can purchase it for 1995 plus shipping and handling um i'll just put david's email address at the bottom of the screen so you can so you can go and order it from him <laughs> Ask about our bulk specials. 